we democratize technology to make it approachable to many enterprises in a way that is easy to consume, is easy and flexible to extend. As a technologist, I think at the heart of keeping your agility is to optimize processes based on a data-driven approach. There's two facets, gather the data to make the decision, but then automate the implementation of those decisions. So when Will Smith says the best things are on the other side of fear, I try to tell myself that when I'm scared to do something, something great is going to come out of that. This is Sierra TV. My name is Hendrik Deckers. I'm here today with Carl Davis Barrett, who is the global partner CTO of Microsoft. A very warm welcome, Carl. Thank you, Hendrik. So nice to be here. Carl, you have a Master in Information Management Systems from the Southampton Institute of Higher Education. Uh, you uh, run for six years as a Managing Director of Software Development Consulting uh, Company. And then in 2008, you joined Microsoft. Uh, so Carl, tell us a little bit more about you. Who are you really? What's your background? And how did you arrive in this position? So yeah, I never would have thought I'd be where I am today, considering where I started. Um, I started out with a bachelor degree in physics and chemistry, okay. and uh, that didn't quite work out. Um, based on the island of Malta, there was not enough industry there to, to really put that to use. And I did transition over to a IT background, studying management information systems. Mm -hmm. And as you said, I, I ran my own business for uh, some years, consultancy training, always Microsoft. Okay. I loved Microsoft <laughs> from the day I, I encountered the, the company. And uh, yeah, I ran that business until one day, you know, I was in a training session and somebody said, Microsoft's hiring. And I was like, well, that sounds really interesting. You know, I could, what are they hiring for? And they said, um, they're hiring for a developer evangelist. I said, okay. intriguing. <laughs> Do I have to sell the message according to the Bible of Bill Gates? Mm -hmm. And uh, they said, no, 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 you, you come in and you're a technical marketing person. So I took that role. And from there, my career just changed. I mean, I became a public speaker across all the events in mm -hmm. Central and Eastern Europe, big events, uh, tech events from Microsoft, and worked my way across the company. So I've held, I would say, about eight different roles in Microsoft, from global black belt to engineering manager in the fast track organization, um, roles inside the subsidiary, um, EMEA regional roles, and more recently now part of the partner success organization. Okay. So it's been, it's been quite a journey that I would have never thought I would have uh, mm -hmm. gone on. Well, it's a super company as well, no? Yes, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Microsoft, it's a household brand. We all use it. Uh, we all love it. But there's many, many different aspects of Microsoft. So what, maybe let's talk a little bit about the enterprise part of Microsoft. What is it that Microsoft does for big companies? And what is it that it does really, really well? So... If I had to choose two sentences, which mm -hmm. I think is, is, is usually the standard, I mean, we have to start with our mission statement, which is empowering everybody on the planet to do more, mm -hmm. which is a great mission statement. But if I was to make that tangible, I would say we democratize technology to make it approachable to many enterprises in a way that is easy to consume, is easily and flexible to extend. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, you know, we can take things which are complicated like IoT and make them very easy to integrate into your business. We can take things like low-code, no-code. So this democratization, I think, is, is very common in Microsoft. At least that's the aspect I've seen mm -hmm. as a developer, as a, uh, an evangelist. Okay, super. And we're going to focus uh, our conversation today on uh, mostly around cloud. Uh, but we're going to start with uh, talking a little bit about business challenges. So you speak with a lot of uh, Microsoft clients. So what do you see as the main business challenges that companies are facing today? And how is it that Microsoft helps companies uh, addressing them? So I think, you know, we, we all live in the real world, which is now a post-COVID era. Mm -hmm. um, we have to start there and say, when Microsoft started off, we were a cloud-first uh, company. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, we we had Steve Barmer say we're all in, and and we had Software Plus Services from Ray Ozzy, and and we are a cloud first company, enabling our customers and partners to do business in the cloud mm -hmm. was quite a journey, right? It's a long journey. It's not something you embark upon half heartedly. So we're we're taking our customers and partners on that journey, and you know, COVID accelerated that. 
the need for standing up servers without being able to go out and buy them just made people move to the cloud faster. Yeah. You know that they said we achieved more as an industry in those two years than we achieved in probably the five years preceding them. Yeah. So if you take that context of a cloud-first environment that we're working in now, um, we see partners coming to us now, though, being a little bit more careful to say, what's the value we bring and how quickly can we bring that value? Mm -hmm. The competition is increasing. The, the, the requirements for innovation is increasing. But under the lens of concrete real value very early on in the, in the, in the life cycle of either a product launch or uh, an, an endeavor that you're going on. Mm -hmm. So I work very hard to bring business value and technology together as quickly as possible for the customer on their terms. Yeah. So I think that's critical, right? So the democratization, bringing it on terms of the customer just makes it easier to embrace and it's a win-win situation. Okay. Another topic I wanted to discuss with you is, is complexity versus agility. I mean, businesses in general, I have the feeling that businesses are getting more and more complex to run. Uh, and, and especially IT, many organizations, I mean, uh, legacy is building up and so on. And, and, and so complexity is really uh, a thing that uh, companies need to deal with. And, and so they need to optimize the processes, get uh, eliminate redundant systems and really maximize the value that they get from, from their resources. And like we said, cloud is no longer an option. Cloud is there for, for everybody. So, but what do you see in business and in, 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 in technology as the major drivers for this increasing complexity? I think, you know, as we discussed before, it, complexity can sometimes be inherent or chosen, mm -hmm. right? If you've had a merger, you inherit complexity. Mm -hmm. If you choose complexity, it's because you say, hey, I don't want to move to the cloud. I want to be hybrid first, mm -hmm. right? It's easy to say, let's lift and shift everything to the cloud versus let's move in a hybrid manner because of the constraints. Um, you may choose multiple clouds, creating more complexity. But as a technologist, I think at the heart of keeping your agility mm -hmm. is to optimize processes based on a data-driven approach. So what do I mean? There's two facets. Gather the data to make the decision, but then automate the implementation of those decisions. Mm -hmm. So if you take a concrete example, it could be that you are you know, spinning up virtual machines in your cloud. Mm -hmm. You cannot do that manually. There's an immense amount of complexity. Software-defined networking has changed the way that we run data centers. Yep. And so this infrastructure as code approach, this coded approach, makes things a lot faster to, to allow you to have agility in a complex world. Mm -hmm. And you need the checks and balances. So yep. you need to have policy in place to make sure that you're making the right decision at the right time um, and that that decision is fully implemented yep. uh, in your operations. So you would say that in, depending a little bit on how you approach it, Cloud can help you to decrease complexity or can increase complexity. Indeed, indeed. Okay. Um, hybrid is a, is a classic example. I spend a lot of time working in, in hybrid environments because um, we, we work on, on public 5G at the moment and private 5G. Mm -hmm. And we've made numerous acquisitions in the company to, to bolster that capability. And hybrid is a way of delivering cloud through a cloud orchestration, but with a local deployment. Mm -hmm. So again, another show of how you can reduce complexity by having a cloud deployment model, centralized management, mm -hmm. but local deployment of those resources. Yeah. And we have lots of nice features like Azure Arc, which will allow you to project those resources into the cloud mm -hmm. and have that single pane of glass. Yeah. So yes, you can still choose a more complex environment by having a hybrid cloud environment, mm -hmm. but gain the benefits of both uh, with a Microsoft hybrid cloud. Okay. Let's also talk a little bit about business alignment and, and cloud, because I um, have the strong feeling that cloud used to be a technology-only decision, but it has become a board decision. I mean, business is really involved now, and should be involved in, in, in cloud strategy. How do you look at that? I think you're right. Um, it, it's now become a decision at the board level because it affects so many parts of the business. Mm -hmm. And let's ground ourselves in a concrete example, the embracing of AI. Mm -hmm. I think everybody's talking about it. And if you look at our business, you know, we've been a cloud-driven business for some years since I joined Microsoft. And now we're infusing AI into all of our products. Mm -hmm. It's a way of 
driving revenue of existing cloud products, but also, you know, unlocking the potential of different parts of the business. Um, But with that, you know, it's no longer siloed or or behind a particular door, which has, you know, a a very well-known guarded entrance. Mm -hmm. Um, You need to understand that that data, you know, who's accessing it? How is that data being accessed? So, a lot of people have a vested interest um, in the cloud and a lot of concerns. So, yeah, it, it makes sense that it's now reached that level of uh, decision-making capability. Okay. Let's drill down a little bit more on AI because that's, of course, the super topic of the moment. And, and, and you're in the center there of Microsoft, you, and, and you speak on, on, on behalf of Microsoft. And so you really know what's going on. What's, what's the latest and the, 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 the brightest that we can expect in, in the coming years to come? in this domain and then maybe in general and more specific around cloud? So, so AI really is you know, a, a beautiful thing inside mm-hmm. Microsoft at the moment. Um, if you look at our earnings yesterday, um, AI accounted for 3% of our cloud platform revenue earnings. Okay. So, so it's growing in terms of its return on investment that we made in the open AI investment of 13 billion. Yeah. Um, what you can expect is in the Ignite timeframe, which is coming up now in November, um, we will release some hundred AI-infused capabilities into our platforms. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you are going to see things like co-pilots. We have a co-pilot for GitHub. We have one million users on co-pilot for GitHub. So mm-hmm. the coding pair programming capability is there already. Um, internally in Microsoft, we will be you know receiving uh, M365 co-pilot so that in our inboxes, we can you know, look after the most important things first, get meeting summaries, um, shows us who took actions at those meeting items and, and who has to respond to those. So you'll see this co-pilot notion of a, you know, an assistive type of AI helping you. Um, I've also seen AI in the telco industry, which I work closely with at Microsoft, where we look at the observability of a platform and only AI can find those trends of why is that piece of equipment failing? Why are we mm-hmm. having so many faults in that particular setup? Yeah. And, you know, again, we've done a great job of democratizing that by allowing you to run queries, which are AI in their own nature, to find the heart of those problems, those root cause analysis. Okay. So, yeah, from an engineering perspective, many different facets yeah. from a consumer to a business user. We live in exciting times. Yes. <laughs> so, Carl, let's talk a little bit more about different cloud strategies that are out there. And, and let's maybe pick a couple and, 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 and maybe you can comment on them. And, and you already mentioned one uh, cloud strategy that, that uh, major companies are taking is, is really a lift and shift strategy. Where do you see this as, the, the, as an appropriate and as a good strategy to just close the data center, move everything as it is to the cloud, and then start optimizing things later. Where, do you, where is that a good strategy? Well, to be honest, it's an obvious strategy when the data center you know, is being closed down and you have a large amount of legacy and sprawl and you're saying, you know, how do I actually cope with this mm-hmm. in, a, in a short period of time? Luckily, the cloud has evolved in such a way that we can now take on a lot of those workloads, which we couldn't in the past. The Mm -hmm. size of machines, the ability to support multiple software vendors. I think the mainframe is still a little bit of a challenge. There's Mm -hmm. still a mainframe migration, which needs to happen. So that's, I wouldn't call that a lift and shift. Um, But yes, you know, we we see that very often in, you know, SAP type workloads where you can just, you know, uh, replatform your your organization on mm-hmm. on the cloud with of course due diligence um, yeah. you know security and and, and reliability and, and making sure you have failover zones and and you know I always like to say a, a bad system on premises will still be a bad system in the cloud yeah. you you still even if you are lift and shifting you need to take that opportunity to improve mm-hmm. um, but there is a case for that I think okay now another strategy is where um, Big companies are more going for hybrid strategy, where they say, well, step by step, we, uh, we have a very well-governed, architected cloud strategy, and, and where we first um, modernize our applications, bring these to the cloud, and then step by step do more, and, and, uh, and, and still keep uh, systems on, on premise well. Where do you see that this is, uh, is, is the best strategy? I think, continuing from your previous discussion, the, the lifting and shifting 
you stay within your comfort zone and it's the minimum amount of change. If you look at hybrid, it appears to be the you know, slightly less amount of change mm -hmm. uh, because you're holding on to what can remain on premises. But I think you haven't really achieved the benefit of hybrid cloud if you haven't stepped into, um, as I said before, you know, managing from the cloud a local deployment. Mm -hmm. uh, Microsoft has been in this place for a very long time. Hybrid cloud was something we started out way before everybody else because mm -hmm. we came from an enterprise heritage. Mm -hmm. We could do that. Others were saying you must move only to the cloud. And we were saying, no, you can move to the cloud in a hybrid manner because you want to maintain sovereignty of your data. You want to be able to control um, you know, the implementation at yep. a hypervisor level, lower than the hypervisor level. So I think hybrid presents opportunity, but an increased complexity. Mm -hmm. um, luckily, with the, with the clouds we offer, you can still automate that cloud as though it was in the, in, in the, in the public cloud. And the idea being, it's just a temporary measure sometimes mm -hmm. to move into the cloud whilst your team ramps up on getting all of the skills necessary to move to a public cloud offering. Okay. But some systems will, will perhaps never move. I mean, mm -hmm. I work on private 5G and you know, that core needs to remain disconnected and running fully autonomous. Yeah. So public cloud is not an option there. You yeah, need for, a, for some applications, there's a, I mean, there's a clear business case to keep it on-prem and, and yeah. keep it under control completely. Yeah. And, uh, but if you have you know, 10, 20, 300 sites, um, all as private clouds, yeah. you're going to need a public cloud to manage those private clouds. Mm -hmm. So that's a real hybrid. Yeah, okay. And then there's, I mean, among the many different cloud strategies, there's maybe a third one that we could identify as saying multi-cloud, more project-based uh, strategy where companies say, well, we have a new program or project or a new product that we need to develop. Let's see what is the best cloud provider, the SaaS, the AS, the PaaS, whatever. The, and, and then we just go project by project. And by default, then you end up with a multi-cloud um, Mess, maybe. Yes, you're hoping to get the best of all worlds, right? Yeah, so, and so nobody when, knows that's realistic. So, so do you think that's a good strategy as well? or? Well, I, I think uh, we had a person in our company once say that there was a myth of multi-cloud. Mm -hmm. um, people feel that they are grabbing the best of breeds by building their own multi-cloud. Mm -hmm. And they're actually losing the best of everything sometimes mm -hmm. because... You know, it's it's hard to say, yes, if you move everything to one particular cloud provider, you will get all of the benefits because, you know, there's that tighter integration. You're going to have to do some work if you're going to bring a SaaS platform and a PaaS platform and an IaaS platform from three different vendors and get them to work together. In an industry based on lots of standards, that works. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's worked in the telco industry, maybe it hasn't, and maybe we should learn from that. Yeah. Um, but I think... Yeah, I think you are adding complexity um, and sometimes missing out on the best. So I would still stand by the myth of the, the multi-cloud being the best of breeds yeah. and saying sometimes, yeah, what am I trading off and what am I actually going to get if I, if I go to best of suite? And this is what we've been saying uh, for quite some time now. Okay. But like we said, down with, with mergers and acquisition, we end up with this complexity. You have no choice. If, if we want it or not. Now, um, uh, I know that Red, Red Hat is an important partner for Microsoft in this, in this world as well. Can you talk a little bit about your collaboration and, and where did the two of you fit uh, really well together? So the collaboration there has been for quite some time. I think it was maybe 2013 or somewhere there where Microsoft first announced a partnership with Microsoft Loves Linux. Mm -hmm. And... That partnership took a lot of work because when we moved to a public cloud-based business, a lot of customers were asking us for open source workloads. Okay. And what we did really well there was we said, we are going to support Red Hat in a single point of contact method, like joint engineering, first line support. If a customer comes with a problem with Red Hat on, on Azure, there's going to be no finger pointing between the, the Azure and the, and the Red Hats. Mm -hmm. And now we've, you know, we've elaborated on that to include you know, better licensing terms. If you've got a, a Microsoft commitment deal and a Red Hat set of licenses to commit, we, we facilitate that. We bring things like OpenShift Container Platform together, uh, JBoss support. So Microsoft changed a lot. When Satya Nadella came on and said, we love Linux, I was actually presenting at a Microsoft, uh, sorry, a Red Hat event um, in Darmstadt three years ago. And I went on stage saying, you probably think, why is a Microsoft guy at a Red Hat conference? 
And I was going to say, you probably think I'm going to say Linux is a cancer. And, <laughs> you know, and, and, and the audience laughed. Yeah. But the reality was we fostered a really great collaboration with Red Hat. And, it, and it's something that just continues. Yeah. So we want to unlock business together. We want to make enterprise IT easier. Mm -hmm. We don't want to create problems. Uh, we want to bring that on a hybrid cloud. We want to bring that in a public cloud. We want enterprises to move to the cloud with as little friction as possible. Okay, super. Now, when we talk to CIOs and we do a lot of discussions around tables and so on and, and, and community events around cloud, it's been a, a very important topic for many years now already. One thing that tends to come up um, time after after time is, is vendor lock-in. That's, that's a big um thing that CIOs are afraid from. So, so how do you think about that? How do you, how do you feel that CIOs need to uh, get over that fear or, or is this fear real? I think the, I think the fear is, is, is real in some aspects, um, handing over the crown jewels, so mm -hmm. to speak, your data. Um, should that stay with you? Should that stay with your managed service provider? Should that stay with your hyperscaler? Um, you want to make sure that the custodians of that data are reliable, mm -hmm. right? So vendor locking to some extent is, is an inevitable, um, but you can do due diligence, yep. right? So if somebody says, hey, bring your workloads to me, but you're going to have to convert to some proprietary format, and I would already be starting to think, hmm, that doesn't really sound good to me. Um, but if, if, if somebody says, listen, we can unlock insights in your data if you provide you know, this, uh, this data in this cloud on your terms, mm -hmm. on-premises, in the cloud, then I think there's, there's less worry for vendor lock-in. Mm -hmm. um, vendor lock-in happens at multiple levels, right? Yeah. From the device you use to the cloud that you're storing your data on. Yeah. Um, I have all of my music on a, a, a favorite music provider. And I already think if I want to move that from that provider to the other famous provider... Can I move my playlist? Yes, I can export them. Can I move the AI that is now tuned that understands the music I like? Probably not. Yeah. So I'm stuck with that provider, whether I like it or not. And I'm happy to pay money to keep that service. Yeah. So I have vendor lock-in, but it's by choice. Yeah. Carl, uh, cloud has brought, I think, a lot of flexibility. Uh, and potentially, if you organize it, well, a lot of agility in organizations. But there's also some risks that come uh, with cloud. Uh, what would you identify as the risks that CIOs really need to look out for and how do they need to mitigate uh, potential cloud risks? Well, I think as we mentioned earlier in the discussion, moving data to the cloud is an opportunity with inherent risks. Who is accessing that data um, is, is one of the first things that springs to mind. Um, we at Microsoft, we use a lot of conditional-based access, which means who is accessing the data from what device for what purpose? Mm -hmm. And so when you put those kind of mechanisms in place, you allow the data to be unlocked in a very controllable manner. Yep. There's also the, the aspect of discoverability of the data side of the cloud. Mm -hmm. um, people can discover things that maybe they're not supposed to discover, um, but can you track if somebody has accessed something that they shouldn't, uh, or can you ideally block in the first place? So there's that, that idea that, you know, as we said before, siloing information is gone. Mm -hmm. I mean, data lakes are going to change the way that, you know, information is interpreted. And yeah, those cloud risks of, uh, you know, people walking away with the data, I think are less real than what people would imagine them to be. Um, breaches are still real. So mm -hmm. people still being able to actually, you know, circumvent security. Um, but the way data centers are operated, it's very difficult to go in there with a USB drive and, and actually take any yep. data. So, and, and who is looking at that data? We have things like confidential compute. So data is fully encrypted. It's encrypted whilst it's being processed. It's yep. So, you know, I think CIOs have a, a, a nicer place to be in now than they were in, in, in five years ago in adopting the cloud. Yeah. So you would say that um, where we are today with cloud is safer to, uh, to uh, put as much as possible in, in the cloud because the, the security and, and, and so on is... I mean, they have, you have the scale. The hyperscalers have yeah. the scale to do this really, really well. It's almost like impossible to, uh, to get to the same level of security in your own data center. That's right? what I was alluding to, to yeah. be honest. That, that's sometimes an argument we use. Mm -hmm. um, and, and definitely with the systems we can employ, 
the, the way we can automate things, the way we have AI looking for patterns, intruder patterns, mm -hmm. the signals we receive are humongous. Yeah. So we can really make decisions very quickly to spot attack vectors. Okay. Another topic that comes up when we talk cloud with, uh, with our CIOs is the, the skills. I mean, fostering skills, getting the right skills. Where are we with that right now? I mean, is, are the right skills available? Do you see it as easy enough for people to, to find the, the, the skills to really build up the cloud strategies and implementations? It's funny because on one hand, I see a lot of resources for people to self-skill. Mm -hmm. And what happened during COVID was a lot of people did do that. Mm -hmm. They got certified. I think you know, we can be thankful that people had time to certify and, and, and we've seen the number of certifications going up. Um, on the other hand, my organization still sees a lot of partners coming to us asking for help, mm -hmm. but the level of request of the help is not the same as it used to be before. So before it was more mundane, introductory, 101 type of stuff. Now mm -hmm. we're doing much more, you know, technical blocker type of uh, education and, mm -hmm. and understanding the products in, at a deeper level. So I think, yes, I think there's, there's been a great maturity um, across all clouds. Mm -hmm. So we see partners who work with AWS, Google, and Microsoft. Yep. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't say we're all at the same level, um, but uh, there's, there's a lot, lot of improvement that happened there. Okay, good. So let's talk a little bit more about your organization, uh, Carl. So, so tell me a little bit more in general, how is cloud at Microsoft organized and, and what is it specifically that, that your teams, you're the global partner CTO at Microsoft, how are you organized and, and where do you spend most of your time? So our team, the Partner Success Organization in Microsoft, is really responsible for the, the big global system integrators. We work with the ISVs, um, and we also work with some of the telcos. Okay. And so our portfolio is quite broad in global terms. Mm -hmm. We're an overlay organization, so we have a lot of other architects and partner managers in the field. Mm -hmm. But we oversee the, the global partners from a technical standpoint, firstly, to help them build products to go to market and be consumed. Mm -hmm. um, this is a, a change we're seeing more, more and more rapidly, which is let's not build something that becomes shelfware, but build something that you know, can be repeatedly scaled through the partners. There's a, a mutual benefit there. Um, we also help our partners to deploy their solutions um, on customer premises. So we form part of what's called the customer success unit, mm -hmm. and we help the partners deliver to the customer's successful outcome. Yeah. Um, we do things like enablement. We do things like architecture. We're organized across multiple clouds. So we have the Azure cloud team. Mm -hmm. We also have a team which works on modern work and business applications. And then we have a data and AI team okay. with app innovation. So we cover the full gamut of the mm -hmm. cloud products or solution areas. Yep. And then we overlay that onto the partners that we work with. And our job at the end of the day is to you know, foster innovation in those partners help them scale our business and help them drive usage of our clouds. Yeah. And where do you spend most of your time? I spend a lot of my time in um, value-based discussions on the 5G side at the moment. It is, what is the real value of 5G? Mm -hmm. um, where do we get the most tangible benefit as quickly as possible? And then I spend quite a bit of time architecting those solutions with architects of the partners that I work with. Um, so that's the, 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 the technical side of things. I spend a lot of time coaching. Uh, I really enjoy coaching and mentoring. Mm -hmm. um, so I split my time you know, as much as possible between you know, business discussions, technical discussions, yep. and people discussions. Yep. Um, and yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's a great opportunity um, in this team that I am, that I have that liberty to be able yep. to lead virtual teams as well as, um, you know, help partners make very important decisions. Let's talk a little bit more about management style in your team and, and, and your management style. How would you describe uh, your uh, management style and how do you um, make sure that you build successful teams? I think you should ask my previous directs what, <laughs> what they thought. I, I just met them this morning uh, in a cafe and uh, they miss me very much. So I obviously did something right. Um, I'm not really an autocratic manager. I'm mm -hmm. not a micromanager. I think these are obvious places to stay away. I find myself more on the coaching democratic side. Mm -hmm. I like discussion to one because I, I've managed, you know, super intelligent teams. 
And I think the only way to keep intelligent teams motivated is, is to be partly visionary and partly democratic. Let them have their say, you know, encourage discussion, um, make them take ownership. And with some people, you have to coach, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I've had cases where I've got 15 years of experience in Microsoft. I feel I have a lot to offer in terms of let me help you learn, you know, what took me so long to learn. Yep. Um, okay. And that's worked well so far. Okay. Now there's management and, and coaching people and, and making sure that you attract the right people and, and work with the, um, the, the very bright minds that, uh, that surround you. Um, another way, another aspect is, of course, leadership. So how do you think your people around you, how do you think you are perceived as a leader? What are the characteristics that you think they will, um, what, what do you think they will say about you when you're not there? I, I think I, you know, and we'll talk about my uh, MBTI type, but I'm very analytical. Mm -hmm. So when I'm in the room, I, I very often dig into the details, maybe sometimes think, People will say, you know, why is he digging into the details? But for me, the devil is in the details. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I like to be the visionary in the room. I like to be able to what, say, listen, I have this vision. But I also like to, to, to be the influencer. I mm -hmm. found in Microsoft the only way to be successful is to, is to you know, influence without authority. Mm -hmm. And very often there's a lot of opportunities to create that influence. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's in thought leadership. Sometimes it's in the, the ability to join the dots. And I think that's where people say, you know, if, if I don't know who, who to reach out to, probably Carl does. Carl's mm -hmm. connected to the right person okay. who, can, who can do that. So when I'm not in the room, who knows what they say? I mean, <laughs> they probably say, where's Carl sometimes? Um, it's not the first time I've had people, you know, IM me and say, join this meeting, please. Okay. So. Well, let's talk maybe a little bit more about the, the, the Microsoft culture in general. I think uh, Microsoft has gone an immense change in culture. Can you talk a little bit about that, what, what happened with, uh, when Satya Nadella came on board and so on? Well, when, when Satya Nadella came on board, he, you know, he was obviously building on the investments of, of Steve Ballmer before him. And, and so when he wrote his book, Hit Refresh, which you know, I read you know, really, you know, with, with, with great interest, it was clear that, you know, that there had to be a culture change in Microsoft. I think there was, you know, people operating in silos, which, you know, happens in every organization. Um, you know, Satya is a very humble person and he, he, he leads by example and you can't help but be infected by that. And I think that really helped that people saw, you know, the emphatic side of him. They saw the technological side of him and it just filtered down through the company. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, you know, filtering it all the way down, it's not an easy, no. not an easy task. You've got to get to all the managers. You've got to get from the, from the bottom up. And uh, it became part of our culture. Like if I take one example, when we hire, and I'm hiring this week, mm -hmm. um, we used to use a term called culture fit, which meant we always hired people that fit our culture. Mm -hmm. And now because of the, the diversity inclusion awareness that we have, we say culture add. I'm now looking for people that will add a different dynamic okay. to my team. Mm -hmm. And I felt that was just so you know, awe-inspiring to come from a leader like that, that we should you know, change the way we look, even in these small details. Now, some of my friends uh, uh, have worked with Microsoft. And what they said, well, and that's some, some years ago, they said, Microsoft is really a cult. You're, I mean, it's, it's full of people that are completely brainwashed about the company and the culture. Is that still the case? Was that ever the case? Are you saying there's a secret Kool-Aid that we all drink? Yeah, I think so. I haven't found that machine yet, yeah. so I'm looking for it. Um, no, I, I think we hire in incredibly intelligent people, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we have a, a chance to pick very intelligent people. Um, people are given a mission. People are given a mission to either reach a quota or either reach a target. Um, and I think in the past, it was more our way or the highway. Mm -hmm. I was an evangelist. You either use Internet Explorer or you're using something else. You either use Windows or something else. And, and that has really changed. It, I, I, I can honestly say, hand on heart, we don't have that kind of cult leadership. We are much more open, um, not just from a diversity and inclusion perspective, but also from, you know, what workloads do you bring? Mm -hmm. How do you want to do that? The, the power of choice really is there on your terms. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure there are too many people uh, left in the cult to, 
to, to perpetuate that motion. Okay, super. So let's talk a little bit more uh, about um, uh, your personality, uh, Carl. And, and you mentioned uh, that we're going to talk about MBTI. So you shared with us that you're an ENTP. Yes. Also known Still. as <laughs> and also known as the visionary or the debater. And the typical strengths of an of an ENTP are that they are charismatic, knowledgeable, they're quick thinkers, original, energetic, and the excellent brainstormers. So you recognize yourself in that, and, and yeah, all except the brainstormer one. I I, I think that's probably there, but the mm -hmm. energetic, passionate about everything I do. I do have visions when I'm working on a project. Mm -hmm. I have a vision. I like to communicate it with passion and vigor. So. Yeah. I think it still applies, but it's interesting, in the beginning of my career, I wasn't an ENTP. I was a person that could just sit in a room, give me code, let me develop, and I would be quite happy. Don't put me in front of an audience. Oh, yeah, I still remember it. the first time I was put in front of an audience and I literally froze. Yeah, because, I mean, a developer doesn't typically have an ENTP profile. No. So you, that's yeah, I made the switch somehow. Okay. Maybe it was Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> now let's talk about your dark side, your development yes. side, your potential weaknesses. Uh, ENTPs. Areas for improvement. Areas for improvement. And I have to disclose I'm an ENTP myself. We can be, uh, if we don't uh, watch out, insensitive, intolerant. Yes. Sometimes we dislike practical uh, matters and we have difficulty to focus. You recognize that oh, and, for and, sure. and how do you overcome these things? Yeah, I, I think training helps uh, mm -hmm. when you become, you know, short fuse, short tempered to, you know, you, you want to rush to a decision. You, you have to, you know, understand other people's cultures and, and training mm -hmm. is something we receive a lot of in Microsoft. Um, soft skills training, I think that really helps. Um, but putting it into practice is where, where it really makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to be congruent with your family life, with your work life. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you see it spilling over, right? Uh, yep. you, you might have a spouse or a partner say, you're not at Microsoft anymore. So that's how you notice it. And you need these kind of indicators of people that you can you know, sound things on to mm -hmm. understand where you are maybe stepping over the line. Yep. We have tools in Microsoft, again, which you know, we run pulses and surveys and we get unfiltered feedback from okay. our directs. Um, yeah, they can be very nice. They can be very brutal and direct. Um, and you get very quantitative measures as well. So it's, it's a scientific uh, approach and an art. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, uh, I definitely see some of those, those traits there. Okay. So you work with partners, you work with people all the time, you, you travel, you speak. But what is it that really drives you? What is it that makes you happy in your life when at the end of the week, when you come back home to your family set, this was really a good week? I think if I've, I love to impart knowledge. And I think that's part of my background as a Microsoft certified trainer. I love sharing. Mm -hmm. um, I love sharing good news. I love sharing bad news. And if I've, you know, helped somebody do something, even if it's just one person in the day, opening the door, say hello, made somebody happy, there's multiple ways to help people. And I think that's what drives me. It's mm -hmm. not the gratification I get. It's, it's a very spiritual thing inside me. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's what we're here on earth to do, is mm -hmm. to make others happy um, and to give them, you know, give them chances. Okay. So we're getting to the meaning of life now. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. It's getting deeper and deeper. <laughs> Switch over the cameras and have that discussion, right? <laughs> so, uh, Carl... When was the last time that you met Bill Gates and how was that meeting? So I met Bill Gates early in my career. He was actually retiring from his post mm -hmm. and we were at a conference and uh, yeah, he was, he was there on stage and, you know, a little robot came out and gave him a little scroll to say, thank you for your, you know, your time at Microsoft. And uh, yeah, I, I was awe inspired to see him because, mm -hmm. you know, having played with computers since a child and yep. seeing this person who, you know, built computers in his backyard and uh, in his basement, I, I was just awestruck with him. Um, I wasn't super surprised when I saw him, to be honest. He was exactly how I expected him to be. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think, no, I just saw, you know, extreme intelligence, uh, a thinker, a uh, very analytical person. Um, yeah, it was a, a, a nice experience to have. Yeah. You know, I feel honored that I had the chance to meet him. Yeah. Um, 
can imagine. I still have to meet Satya though, somehow. <laughs> okay, so I can imagine that Satya and, and Bill Gates are, I mean, uh, role models for you, people that inspire you. Are there other people, mentors that you look up to that you've learned from that you could share? I, I have mentors inside Microsoft, so on a professional side, we're encouraged to have mentors. Mm -hmm. And I followed some of my mentors through my career. Okay. Um, they've moved up and I've moved up and sideways. And, and so I have mentors who help me with career decisions, um, managers who push me out of my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. um, and also I have my wife, who's a, an amazing mentor. I've, probably everybody on your interview says this, <laughs> but... You know, she, she, she gives me encouragement. She supported me. Um, and so I, I, but I see her as a mentor because she manages the four kids we have at home, mm -hmm. you know, whilst I've traveled and had a career at Microsoft. Okay. And she gave up her career so that I could do that. So for me, that is a mentor and a half. I can imagine. So four kids, congratulations. That must be Thank you. amazing. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Uh, because I think why you do this job and why you really lo love and are passionate about your job says something about how you're wired and about the core values that you live by. So uh, what, what would you describe are the, the core values that you are passing on to your four kids? I, I, I think my wife passes on more <laughs> values than I do. Um, we had this discussion and I knew this question was coming. So I prepared a little bit from my side to say, I want them to be committed and respectful of others. Mm -hmm. So if they promise they're going to be somewhere, I want that. And I want that in my team. I want that with the people around me that, you know, like I said, if you commit to something, you deliver it, mm -hmm. right? Your commitment is your word and your word is who you are. Yeah. Um, the respectfulness, uh, I think, is, 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 is a given, um, but also to be thankful and sharing. Mm -hmm. um, just like I like to share, it doesn't mean I expect others to share, but you know, so many of us are blessed with so much mm -hmm. and there are so many other people that don't have. So yeah. I, I really would like my kids to appreciate um, and the people who I work with, the opportunity mm -hmm. that they have. So yeah, commit and share. Okay. Carol, do you have a personal mantra that you could share with us? I, I like music. So I take two lyrics from two bands and okay. people in the audience can guess who they are. One is every day is a gift, not a given right, mm -hmm. which means when I wake up in the morning, I thank God that I have that day to do something positive. Mm -hmm. And so whether I help one person or I help a thousand people or, or you know, I, I do my best to make use of that gift. Um, and I don't take that day for granted. And the second thing comes from a uh, another song where it's talking about being still and don't break character. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's, I need to be authentic. I need to be authentic with you. I need to be authentic with the audience. Mm -hmm. The moment I stop being authentic, yep. then I've lost. So I try to keep those two mantras um, in place. Okay. And Carl, you, you obviously work hard. You traveled a lot uh, out there with clients and, and conferences and so on. Um, but if when you get back home, what are your personal passions? Where do you spend your uh, free time? So I love music um, and I've passed it on to my kids. There's always music on in the house. Mm -hmm. uh, my sons play uh, drums, guitar, and we have a lot of music in the house. And you play as well? And I don't, funnily enough. <laughs> I have, probably have some hidden character uh, capability. Mm -hmm. um, I spend a lot of time, uh, you know, in the garage making things. Um, and I love movies. I love watching movies. But, you know, on a fitness side, I, I love to run and I love to cycle. Um, I go on crazy, you know, half marathons every so often. I just oh. decide to run a half marathon. Um, or I get on my bike and cycle 70 kilometers into the mountains. So living in Munich, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a great place to, to get uh, my hobbies done. Now, you shared with us that you're born in Malta. Yes. You grew up there as well. And is there some Maltese still left in you? Can you talk about that a little bit? I, I'm, I still, I've moved to Germany. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm so thankful that Microsoft moved me to Germany with my kids um, temporarily uh, 13 years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, But I'm, I grew up in Malta, born in Malta. Um, most of my family is Maltese. Okay. We're very warm-blooded and, and open and direct people. Mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, I still consider myself more Maltese, um, even though I have a British accent from my father. So, okay. very much Maltese. Okay. And Maltese is as a separate language, right? Maltese is our own language for okay. half a million people. Uh, <laughs> sounds Arabic uh, with a mixture of Italian and uh, other languages. Okay, superb.
Carl, one of my favorite questions is, you've been very successful in your career, but we all make our mistakes. So is there one mistake that you would share with us that maybe is your most brilliant one? And, 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 and so please share that and what did you learn from that mistake? That's, that question can go in a lot of different directions. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I think about that, I think of career mistakes from a technological perspective. I know mm -hmm. one story where I was you know, working at a life insurance company early in my career and you know, I executed a query, select staff from customers and you know, this 20 million database just crashed and 10 seconds later, somebody tapped on my shoulder and said, what, what have you done? And at that moment, I had a choice to say nothing or, well, I execute and, and the, you know, the lady was very nice about it. And you know, I learned early on that honesty is the best policy in mm -hmm. these situations. Um, learn from your failures. There's no such thing as a failure. If you've learned from it, then it's an opportunity to, to grow. Yeah. Um, there have, would have been some mistakes in my career, I would say, where I hung on to something for too long um, you know, I, I, I got used to something. I, I stayed in my comfort zone and I, and, and that can really be a bad thing because in your comfort zone, you don't learn, you don't grow. Yep. And now I encourage everybody that I work with to, to take that leap of faith. And so, you know, maybe I didn't run my business long enough. Maybe it would have been successful if I had carried on, but I, yep. I jumped into Microsoft and new career doors opened. So, I take the mentality, yes, there were failures um, where I may have stayed in a role too long and then, you know, well, your position is now untenable, Carl. You need to find another role. Yep. That happens in Microsoft, right? So, yeah, and, and it's a failure when you say, well, I saw that coming and I could have done something about it. Yep. So, mm -hmm. But as an ENTP, you like new things. You like new experiences, like to try out new, yes. new things, Yeah, right? maybe that's a bit of the conflict of, yeah, the, that's of I, the ENTP. <laughs> I can imagine that. So uh, besides your four kids and your wife um, and, and, uh, and, and the lovely family there that you come from, what would you say is one of the best things that have ever happened to you in your life? You, you definitely took away the best thing, <laughs> yes, but the sure. second best thing, I, I would say, you know, when I gave up my company mm -hmm. to join Microsoft, that opened up a world of travel, a world of experiences, mm -hmm. a world of managers that, you know, helped me grow. I still recall my first manager saying, uh, I, I asked him, I said, Pierre, you know, I, I'd love to do an MBA. I never did that when I ran my own company. He said, don't worry, Carl, stay at Microsoft long enough. You'll have your MBA. Mm -hmm. And I look back on that and I look back on all of those experiences that were unlocked. And from a personal side, we moved to Germany. We experienced new things. Mm -hmm. You know, we got out of our comfort zone completely from Malta to a freezing country. <laughs> you know, they drink beer and they, they eat pork. And my wife's allergic to pork, by the way. And I, I still took her there. So... It just opened up a, a world for my kids. My kids mm -hmm. are now at German University, some of the best ones in, in Germany. Okay. So thankful for Microsoft. Um, mm -hmm. Now, a lot of good things happen to us. Sometimes also bad things happen to us. Is there one thing that you would share, maybe a bad thing, one of the worst things that happened to you and what you learned from that? Th this, is, this is a very personal thing for me. Um, you know, you see people who are happy on the outside, mm -hmm. but on the inside, they're very turbulent. And, and I went through a time where I suffered a lot with depression. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on the outside, I looked fine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I read books, you know, and, and I bought books where it said, you know, it's okay to not be okay. And, mm -hmm. and, and I tried to self-help myself mm -hmm. out of it. Um, but in the end, I found that it was opening up to the people that cared for me most and saying, I need help, mm -hmm. which is how I got out of that kind of really bad situation. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I hope if there are people who do go through that, that they realize they're not alone. And we have, you know, mental um, illness awareness now, and we have a lot of kind of, you know, help for, for people in, in, in depression. And there's a lot of places where you can get, you know, advice. And especially, I think also with the way that we work nowadays, right? I mean, people working a lot from home and not having the social contacts as much as they they used to have is, is has a big impact on, on, on mental well-being of people as well, no? Indeed, indeed. This, this hybrid work, and I've worked from, from home pretty much for the last 15 years. Microsoft's been pioneers in this new world of work. Um, yeah, I, I turn my camera on, you know, in the morning and get dressed to go to work. I do all the basic stuff to just make sure that, 
you know, it is a hybrid world of work. We have mm-hmm. to get used to it. Um, and when we have chance, we travel and meet each other yep. um, and do it in person. <laughs> okay, super. So in your life, Carl, what is it that you fear most and what is it that you love most? What do I fear most? Oh, uh, well, loss is an easy one. Um, mm-hmm. Losing something, whether it's my glasses that I lost in the cafe this morning and I had to go back and, <laughs> and, and um, get them. I'm, I'm always continuously worried that I've, I've, I've left something behind or I've forgotten something. Mm-hmm. So I would take the loss as the, as the biggest fear. Anybody who knows me, um, yeah, okay. forgetfulness. <laughs> Um, and the thing that I love most, um, I love public speaking. Mm-hmm. I love, you know, the ability to, to help others. Um, I love the work that I do. And I just love to be, you know, in whatever it is that I'm doing. But I think on a personal side, I like fixing things. Mm-hmm. For me, and I try to instill this in my kids, that, you know, if something's broke, it can be fixed. And so I spend a lot of time in my garage making things, okay. fixing things. I built a beer advent calendar with 25 bottles of beer, you know, in shape of a Christmas tree. I love to invent and innovate, mm-hmm. except I couldn't drink all 25 beers, <laughs> you know, every day over Christmas. Okay, super. Carl, uh, if there was one thing that you had to pick as being your gift, your super skill, what would that be? So... My first manager told me I was a networking ninja. Mm-hmm. Um, what he meant by that was that I could connect with people and use that network to get things done. We talked mm-hmm. about it in, in how I use that in my everyday. But the skill that I use to build my network, and this is how I mentor people, is to say, build a personal connection. When you meet somebody, don't just try and value what they can do for you, but mm-hmm. make a personal connection. And that network has grown and grown and grown. And even though those people move around, they still remember who you are and they still help you in the context of the capacity that you remember them in. Yeah. So I think, yeah, networking is key. Uh, nowadays, it's easier than ever to network. Absolutely. Um, there are so many tools, so many ways to publish online, great opportunities like this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Carl, you have a very successful career. You're um, a CTO of uh, Global CTO, Microsoft for the Partners. Um, if people want to follow in your footstep, if we have young, professionals, ambitious, um, uh, career-oriented uh, people that want to follow in your footstep, what is the advice that you would give to them? I would say be very intentional about your career. It's easy to hope your career advances on its own. Um, I'm doing the right thing, therefore the right things are going to come to me. That, that doesn't happen. Um, you foster a network which will help you get the right mentors, would help you get the right connections to those roles. But again, be intentional, be very, you know, have a career plan, but not a career plan that just sits on paper, a career plan that you you hold yourself accountable to. Again, another uh, quality that I want to keep is accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, be be realistic and, uh, and don't be afraid to get out of your comfort zone. I, I love, you know, when Will Smith says, the best things are on the other side of fear. Mm-hmm. And so I try to tell myself that when I'm scared to do something, something great is going to come out of that. So get out of your comfort zone and yeah, maybe don't become an ENTP. I'm not sure that's the, the best benefit or advice I could give. Okay. And on that note, thank you so much, Carl. It was thank a pleasure. You. Thank you so much.